Okay, stop me if you've heard this one before. Man, they just don't make them like they used to. I have to imagine that you've heard this phrase before. I mean, I know I have. In fact, I may have caught myself saying it once or twice in the past. I don't often agree with this sentiment. I mean, let's face it, there are some reasons that we don't make things like we used to. We've advanced and evolved, not only in the kinds of stories we tell, but in the ways we tell them. But I do sometimes think that this phrase can ring true. There are certain, let's say, creative mindsets that have been abandoned by studios in the franchise era that we're all currently living through. Back in the 80s and 90s, visionary filmmakers were tackling bold story ideas that, on paper, sounded a bit bizarre, but in execution, became all-time classics. But nobody did that kind of movie better than Steven Spielberg. I could go on and list off his near three-decade-long filmography of iconic blockbusters to prove my point, but I really only need one of them to illustrate it. That film is Jurassic Park. Now, yes, it was based on a novel by Michael Crichton, but the story was molded and adapted into something entirely its own, and people loved it. It became the highest grossing film of all time at that time and went on to redefine dinosaurs for years to come. I mean, if somebody denies that the T-Rex from Jurassic Park is the definitive T-Rex in just all of human history, uh, they're lying to themselves. There are plenty of reasons why Jurassic Park was as successful as it was and still is, but when you break all of that stuff down, there's really only one, and I learned what that reason was from accomplished screenwriter, author, and podcaster Trisha Arand. She has talked a lot about her love for Jurassic Park. Some may even call her an expert on the subject. And in today's episode, she's going to share that precious insight with you. We're going to uncover exactly why Jurassic Park remains one of the greatest films of all time and how maybe, just maybe, we can start making them like we used to. Hello and welcome to My Favorite Movie Is, a podcast celebrating our favorite movies through fresh, positive takes from passionate movie lovers. I'm your host and a movie lover just like you, Larry Freed. And every week we sit down with a brand new cinephile as they share the life-changing experiences behind their all-time favorite movie, or whatever comes closest. Through their stories, you will gain brand new, modern insight into some of the most talked about movies of all time all while deepening your appreciation and love for cinema and reaffirming the power of filmmaking. Thank you so much for being here. We know that there are plenty of other movie podcasts that you listen to, and we are honored to be amongst them. Quickly, before we get started, if you haven't watched the movie that we're talking about today, don't worry, you can still continue to listen to this episode, which is spoiler-free uh, for now. Eventually, we are going to have to dive into the nitty gritty, but when we do, we're going to give you a fair spoiler warning, so that way you can go into this film as fresh as possible. But for those of you who did the homework, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of My Favorite Movie Is. Hello, my name is Trisha Arand, and my favorite movie is Jurassic Park. When I was very young, my dad introduced me to his love of movies and like started showing me movies that he really loved. And so I remember seeing Jaws when I was eight and just, just falling head over heels in love with Jaws. 
despite how, you know, being utterly terrified by it, like any good eight-year-old would be. <laughs> and, and that would have been right around the time, actually, that Jurassic Park came out. For some reason, although I was old enough to watch Jaws, my parents decided I was not old enough to watch Jurassic Park. But my sister and my cousins, who were older than I was, my sister's two years older than me, and I, we had cousins that we were raised very closely with, they were allowed to go see Jurassic Park. And so my sister came back, she told me everything that you could, like, she remembered every single little bit of it. Like... I have no idea how her recall was that good, but like she knew snatches of dialogue that she was able to tell me about it. And like, she described the entire plot in detail, every character, like here's where this happens and what that happens and here's what it looks like. And I remember her telling me about like the raptor eye through the bars of the like cage that it's in at the beginning. It's an amazing image. Um, and so even though at that point I had not seen the movie, like I just got obsessed with it and you know, in the 90s, everybody was obsessed with Jurassic Park, so it was easy to be obsessed with it. I rewatched Jurassic Park last night, which you know, and uh, I really love Jaws, too. Uh, oh, for it's a while, so good. Yeah, for a while, I thought Jaws was my favorite Spielberg movie, and then Jurassic Park emotionally wrecked me. And I was like, uh-oh, mm-hmm. we might have a battle on our hands here. I love E.T. also, for the record. Like, that's got to be up there for me. With yeah, E.T. is a fun one, yeah. And I'm sure I saw that one when I was younger. I'm sure I saw that one when I was probably, yeah, six or seven. Pardon my assumptions, but most people, uh, when they're excited about a movie, would not want somebody to tell them literally everything uh, before they watch it for the first time. I think some people might think that that would ruin it for them. I'm curious for you, what made you so excited to still see the film even after the entire thing is relayed to you? First of all, Larry, you can't spoil Jurassic Park. Like, I mean, no, no, no. (laughs) Like the primary one of the primary draws of the film is the astounding spectacle of it. And so someone telling you and then the T-Rex stomps through the fence doesn't remotely begin to convey what the experience is like sitting there watching the T-Rex stomp through the fence. You know, that sentence is nothing by comparison to the image of seeing that happen. Like, and you know, someone will say to you like, and then the velociraptor like roars or shrieks or whatever it does. That doesn't tell you anything. Like no one can make that sound for you. Mm, And so there is absolutely no way to spoil that part of the movie like you could i guess have the plot spoiled for you or like have the jokes maybe spoiled for you but the experience of watching it is unspoilable because nothing has ever looked like it nothing ever looked like it before that and pretty much nothing has looked like it since then and so like yeah i was just i couldn't have been more excited to watch it it blew me away like i could you know i knew basically what was going to happen next but it still just knocks you over when you see it. And so it was the movie I was most excited to see, I think, ever in my life. Because I wasn't allowed to watch it for two years. Yeah. I didn't get to watch it until it came out on VHS, which was a long time after it was released in theaters. And I had to be nine years old, apparently. <laughs> and so 
<laughs> like my parents decided it was too scary for me, but so like I had to wait and wait and wait forever. And meanwhile, I was so obsessed with it that I was like having dinosaur nightmares at night just based on stuff my sister told me. I don't know. It's wild. You said that your your dad was uh, really into film. What was his background in film? Like, do you know anything about how he uh, discovered film, or if he did any work in it, or if he if it was really a, a major part of of him and his upbringing? You know, I don't think so. I am a military brat. My father was in the Coast Guard when I was growing up, and so we moved around every couple of years, and mostly up and down the East Coast. I was born in Virginia. And uh, we lived in South Carolina for a while. My dad did another couple of stations in the Washington, D.C. area. You know, he was guarding the coast. Um, <clears throat> we, also lived, we also lived briefly for a while in Toledo, Ohio, which was right on Lake Erie, also the coast of the U.S. We very much had, like, a really close family. We were very, like, literary reader, big reader family. My mother is a children's librarian and a teacher. And so, yeah, my, my dad is in the Coast Guard. He's an engineer. I know that he had an interest in fiction when he was like a teenager and probably into young adulthood. And I know he wrote, you know, short stories here and there. But I remember him talking about seeing Sting when he was a kid. Like, it, you know, in his hometown, that movie ran in the theater for a year. Wow. And my dad has talked about like going back to see it again and again and again during that year that it was running at his hometown theater, especially I'm sure in like the sixties and seventies, he just took in a lot of film and was really interested in it. And I think it was just something that he fell in love with. And it was just like an escape for him. You know, he had the, uh, we had the Leonard Malton's movie guide for those that don't know, um, the, uh, for, master, for young folks. Yeah. Before IMDb and the internet existed, <laughs> if you wanted to know where you knew that guy from, you were watching a movie and you're like, who is that guy? Where do I know him from? I don't know. You know, the only way to find that information out was to get your Leonard Maltin's movie guide, which, you know, <laughs> was like a five inch thick or thicker book off of your shelf, look up the name of the movie that you were watching that had that guy in it, or you could look up the name of the filmmaker, and then you could look in the index, and then you could find that actor, and then look him up in the index, and it would tell you all the movies that he'd been in, or whatever. And of course, it wasn't comprehensive, but it was like right. a pretty good step on the way to get there of like, here's what you might need to know about a movie. And Leonard Maltin's movie guide also had like, you know, stars in it. This movie gets two and a half stars from Leonard Maltin and it has a little summary of the plot and everything. And so that was like in constant use at our house. And so we would be watching a movie on TV or on VHS and he would pull down the movie guide and be like, oh, that's where I know him from. And then he would be sure that I, you know, I don't know if he was trying to teach me or he just thought, you know, clearly I was interested in it, but he would be like, that's Paul Newman. You know what other movies Paul Newman is in? He's in this, 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 and this. Isn't he great? And like, just kind of 
helped me make connections about who people were in film. There was just a lot of like film, like watching together as a family, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm curious. You talked about Jaws and, and E.T. Are there any non-Spielberg film posts that you can think back on during your childhood that were major for you? Definitely. Um, when I was really young, my favorite movie was Sleeping Beauty, Walt Disney's animated classic Sleeping Beauty. Of course. I was obsessed with that movie when I was probably three or four years old. And I remember being obsessed with it. I used to watch it every day. I remember one time I got in trouble with my mom. I'm sure that I lied to her. I was a ridiculous liar as a child. Um, <laughs> just, I was just one of those kids that just lied. So I'm sure that I had gotten caught in a lie. And she told me that I wasn't allowed to watch Sleeping Beauty for a week. Um, that was my punishment because I watched it every day. And Ugh. it was torture. The horror. I, I just remember, yeah, just the days dragging by and feeling like I had been... <laughs> so unfairly punished like to such a such a greater degree than my crime i was like this is ridiculous and i can't verify this with anybody but i seem to recall going down the street and watching it at my neighbor's house when i was oh my goodness in the middle of my punishment of not being able to watch it for a week a it's a crafty liar unbelievably conniving and just elaborate lies very elaborate lies i don't know why but as soon as you said <laughs> that, i just thought of that line from jurassic park clever girl clever girl <laughs> thank you whatever his accent is he says like like clever girl or something i don't know his accent's a little <laughs> hard Australian, to ascertain I mean, yeah yeah but it's uh it's still very i don't know something about that line just doesn't sound right when you first hear it i remember watching the academy awards in 1992 which is when wow. Beauty and the Beast was nominated for Best Picture. I really loved Beauty and the Beast. Um, I think it's like back then it was easily what my mother would have said was her favorite movie ever. Wow. I remember just going like, I hope it wins the big award. Like, what is this award show? I hope my favorite movie wins the big award. And so I watched <laughs> the big award show and it didn't. But that was kind of the first time I remember seeing movie makers assembled in a room. And like getting to see yeah. behind the curtain of like, here are the faces of the people who make all the movies. And also really feeling a strong sense of like, those are my people. I should be in that room. Those, <laughs> they're doing what I want to do. That's the reason that I, I still love the Oscars. And I, I think I've watched the Oscar ceremony every single year since 1992. Wow. So um, pre-Jurassic Park, I was already a movie fan. I just, you know, when you're that young, you don't have a real sense of like, the filmmaking process or, I don't know, people who make movies go about doing that. So yeah, I just remember Jurassic Park being like definitely a watershed moment of realizing, oh, people make movies. There are people who, who make movies and I could be one of those people maybe. Maybe someday. I mean, I have known since that time or even earlier that I wanted to be a writer or that I was a writer. I would write plays for my siblings and cousins and the neighborhood kids and elaborate plots and lines and dialogue. And I would direct them a book that I wrote when I was in second grade that like, you know, it's just a little picture book or whatever, but in the back, it has an about the author page. And it says like, when I grow up, I want to be an author. I knew very, from a very young age that that was just for me. And that's just how my brain works too. Like, 
If you read that book that I wrote when I was in second grade, which is about a cat who is trying to get a ball of yarn out of a, a hole that it's rolled into. It's like, here's a hero. Here's a goal. Here's an obstacle. Yeah, good screenwriting a- from a very young age. <laughs> the hero tries a couple different ways to get the yarn out of the hole. Like it was just, you know, very, it's just how my brain works. You know, no one ever sat me down and taught me that. That was not really so much of a question as like what kind of writing would I end up doing in my life. I wrote a lot of short fiction. I've written poetry as well. And like in high school, I started making movies, like writing screenplays and actually making movies with just my friends and siblings and things like that. And I was directing them as well. At that time, I was heavily involved in theater um, and I was doing a lot of directing and stage managing in theater also. And I wanted to be a writer director. When I decided to go to school for that, I realized that like no one was writing anything that I was remotely interested in directing. And so (laughs) I was like, well, I'll just write it myself and then I'll just direct it myself. And I started doing that and it was uh, tough sledding. I could talk for a long time about what it's like to be in film school, especially what it was like for me to be in film school as a woman and as a woman who wanted to be a director and a woman with strong creative vision who wanted to write and direct my own things. As I was in the process of formally learning film, it just occurred to me that it would probably be easier to be a screenwriter only than to be a writer and director. I don't want to say it got bullied out of me, but it almost it, it almost did in a lot of ways. I would really hope that film school is a more hospitable place to women now than it was when I was in film school. I would say that I still would love to be a director someday. I still am a director in my heart. But like when I when I write and sit down to write a screenplay now, I do still write with like a directorial eye and and sense. That being said, I haven't been all that like sad. I don't think that something is like missing from my life if I don't of become course, a professional right, yeah. director because I'm very happy as a screenwriter. And you've also accomplished so much, so you should be very uh, happy with where you are. Thank you. Clearly, Jurassic Park changed you and opened your eyes to something incredible. And so the question is, what is that thing? What did Jurassic Park awaken from within you that no other film had done up until that point? Jurassic Park to me sort of represents the pinnacle of the bill of goods that I was sold on when it came to joining the movie industry. It was like, I want to make something cool to look at that gives us everything, right? Movies like Jurassic Park give us everything. They give us the catharsis. They give us the emotion. They give us the characters. They give us the thematic idea. At the same time, they just knock us over with how they look. Like, I wanted to do all of that at the same time. And Jurassic Park, like, there's basically nothing better at doing that. I don't know, maybe Titanic is sort of up there in terms of, like, what it movies that do everything, right? But Mm -hmm. there just aren't that many of them. Jurassic Park is the kind of movie that I I wish got made more and that I wish I would be allowed to write these days. Um, (laughs) They well and truly don't make them like they used to. And not not just because of 
the like technology that's involved, right? Where like everything is super CGI now and like the whole approach to the filmmaking is totally different now. Not just because of that, but because of the way that Hollywood was operating at that time. Like Hollywood was still really interested in investing in visionary directors and pretty much letting them make not totally what they wanted, but giving them a lot of leeway to take big swings at big ideas and writing them big checks to do that. And so there was a piece of IP involved in Jurassic Park. Obviously, it's based on a novel. That's not new, by the way. Like, Hollywood has been mm-hmm. making movies based on books since the jump. So it's like yeah. that part of like wanting a piece of IP that creates sort of a safer bet for a studio is not new. It was a very popular book and Crichton was a very popular author already. But Jurassic Park really just happened to have the kind of, you know, big concept hook to it that studios were interested in anyway. And so like, Crichton sat, actually, when he sat down to write Jurassic Park, he originally wanted to write it as a screenplay because there is something already so cinematic about it as a high concept thing. And so it was like IP aside, it was the kind of movie that Hollywood was really interested in bankrolling. And it was like sort of the the prime era of the true blockbuster, the big spectacle. Here's like a huge four quadrant, like action adventure thing with like a lot of interesting themes and character work. I guess this is more like sci-fi monster movie if you want to think about it that way. Although, you know, it's the, especially the second half of it are built around these incredible action set pieces. It's just not the kind of way that like development or budgeting is done anymore. Like they just don't make movies like this with untested properties and it's like really quite a shame because you know this used to be the imperative of like writing a script like Jurassic Park that has really clear strong character arcs that has like a really clear strong theme that has a really sort of interesting thematic question at the heart of it with like sort of a a hot button issue but that's also just like an incredible thrill ride and has this really cool high concept piece to it that was the imperative of writing a a big movie in the 80s and 90s it was like what is the single image what is the hook what is a like kid standing in an open doorway with the light blazing through you know in close encounters what is that image for any one of these movies if you want to make a movie like this what is the shark fin in the water what is the you know the thing the bicycle against the moon scripts back then were designed to be pitchable instantly iconic that's what a high concept movie is and To ignite our sense of wonder is the other thing that a high concept movie is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to have this really singular, fascinating, cool idea at the heart of it that makes us sort of in wonder and awe and fear and like lights up that sort of like kid adventure wonderment part of our brain. That's what filmmakers were making in the 80s and 90s, especially. 
that is certainly not, no one wants a high concept movie anymore, really. Like, at least not unless it's already a part of a tested franchise. That used to be just what movies were. And that's obviously over a dramatic oversimplification. Lots of different things were happening in the film industry in the 90s. Indie movies were coming into their own in the 90s and starting to get distribution through major festivals and things like that. There were all kinds of things and like Oscar movies have always been kind of what they are still in a lot of ways. It's not actually true because big high concept movies used to be Oscar movies as well. But, you know, Spielberg made Schindler's List in the same year that he made Jurassic <laughs> Park. So like, yes. there's the two sides of that coin. That is such an interesting idea because I think it's very easy for aspiring filmmakers and screenwriters to be pointed at the screenwriting techniques behind Jurassic Park because those are tried and true, you know. But I kind of like this idea you're talking about, about that in combination with the wonderment aspect. Yeah that balancing of, I guess, the technical story elements that work so well with the sort of mind-boggling effects and the action sequences and the thrills and all of these things. I was wondering if you could speak to that in the film and if there are example moments to you that shine in this practice. One of the things that Spielberg is often maligned for is like his sort of like big and like earnestness, right? I could talk about Spielberg for ages, but could I. it would be hard to overstate the influence that his school of filmmaking in particular had on the movie industry. But the thing about Spielberg's directing is that Spielberg is never embarrassed or especially, maybe he is a little now, um, but in, if you look at his early films in the in the 80s and, and in the 90s, especially sort of in like the big heyday when the perfect storm of the kind of person that the film industry was looking for met Steven Spielberg starting in 1975 when he made Jaws. What Spielberg was really, really good at doing was showing you what film was capable of showing you and only film was capable of showing you. And so I've, you know, already like spoken to a few of the like really iconic images that Spielberg has created in his career, but like in no other movie would you get that image of like a bicycle crossing the moon and if that's not wonder what is it right like it's this really striking image that ignites your sense of of wonder and like sort of childlike wonderment at being able to sit in a movie theater and watch that and so spielberg what he knew how to do so well was not to be embarrassed about showing you a movie and pushing the boundaries of what movies could show you. And in fact, a lot of the like new filmmaker, new Hollywood, those guys, that was kind of what, like I said, this was what the job was. Come up with an amazing image to show the audience. And Spielberg happened to be, you know, drawn to like sci-fi kind of ideas, which really lend themselves to this imperative, right? Like come up with like, you know, something that's magical, basically, that you can show the audience. You know, when we th think about the opening sequence of Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Like Raiders of the Lost Ark was hearkening back to like the adventure, you know, serials of the 30s and 40s, but Spielberg just went for it. And yeah. like, you've got those shafts, like the beams of light that are just like striking in through the trees and like the silhouette of Indy, you know, there with when he turns with his hat on and all of these things, a giant rolling rock, like those were, you know, kind of cornball 
like <laughs> things. But Spielberg took them absolutely seriously because he understood their cinematic value. Like those images are exciting, whether they're in like a very cheesy 1930s serial or whether they're like basically being played straight in the Indiana Jones movies, which I think it's so fascinating that the Indiana Jones movies are considered to be, you know, they're not, they were kind of parodying some a, a different genre from 50 years before they were made, but they're not considered to be like parody films. They're just adventure movies in their own right, right. because it turned out people wanted something earnest, something that actually made them just thrilled on a, a basic level of like, I'm being told an exciting story. And Spielberg was just not afraid or not embarrassed to tell you an exciting story with exciting twists and turns that are, they're not ashamed of being what they are, you know, quote unquote chapters and scenes of movies closing on like a cliffhanger or yeah, these raw thrills and scares. Like Spielberg went back into Jaws and added more scare moments into it because he wanted the audience to scream a couple more times. And he wasn't <laughs> embarrassed about doing that. He was trying to make a scary movie. So he was like, I better scare them. And movies just aren't made that way anymore. Movies are so embarrassed to be movies now. And I don't know why. They're always like made with this tinge of irony instead of with this earnestness that Spielberg was is so known for. And here it comes. We are officially entering spoiler territory. For those of you who want to go into this film as fresh as possible, this is where we part. If you've been enjoying the show so far and you want more My Favorite Movie Is, I encourage you to check out more episodes on our show page on the podcasting app you're listening on right now. Or find all of our episodes at mfmipodcast.com. We've covered plenty of other movies, and any movie lover worth their salt has surely seen at least one of them. But all right, enough dilly-dallying. Let's dive into spoiler territory. And then there are, and there are countless examples of this in Jurassic Park. Like, the biggest one is the one right at the very end where the T-Rex comes in and chomps on the Velociraptor and the banner falls down. He swings his tail around and knocks the skeleton over. And when dinosaurs ruled the earth, comes floating down right in front of it. God, what an image. Yeah. <laughs> Come on now. But that's me with my 20, you know, that's me with my 2022 brain. Like, yeah, yeah. But I'm sure that people who were. You know, I'm 35 now. I'm sure people who were 35 in 1993 maybe rolled their eyes at that a little bit. But damn, <laughs> if it isn't exciting and fun to watch, so it's fun exciting. to watch. I agree with you that those images are incredible, but they're certainly not made just to be big. Like that moment is symbolically is like of course. mind shattering. Like it's yeah. like and it works so perfectly in the themes and context of the film. Yep. It's just I remember one shot just to add on to what you're saying. I literally had to pause the film because I was so shocked by how good this shot was. It's the shot where the Velociraptor, it like the code, the DNA code is projected uh -huh. over the Velociraptor. Yep. I had to pause because yep. I was enthralled by like yep. how images could play with one another in this way. Like it was something truly magical. Oh yeah. Magical. No, and there are so many, you know, the rings... The rings in the water glass is just like another one. You know, we can get to the score as well, but like the fact that John Williams and his sort of sensibility happens to like dovetail into Steven Spielberg's sensibility in terms of like, I'm just going to write the biggest score of all time. Like yeah. you write, you make the biggest monster movie ever. I'm going to write the biggest score ever. And here we go.
and we're just not going to hold back. Like, why would you do that at, at 80% for fear of being too earnest or too, you know, I don't know, too cinematic about it or something like that. It's like, this is what movies do. This is what movies can do. So let's just go all the way, right? The most incredible score you've ever heard ever with all this brass and like these trills and timpani and like, you know, basically everything short of like shooting a cannon off, basically. Yeah, it's so um, triumphant. Just oh, like it's great. every time you hear that theme, it always mm-hmm. just feels like they're blaring along with the yep. with the events of the film. I think that this then and now definitely taps into that childlike wonder that I think we all want to feel all the time that is often often just dismissed as being like childish when i was a when i was a kid i i had this you know wild imagination and it was just so much play like everything was just play and everything was just effortless when it came to like imagining worlds and and people and and stories and it was just so easy all kids have that like kids have amazing imaginations and then the world just stomps it out of us like and just beats it out of us as much as possible you know we have all of this like hope and wonder and like you know kids love dinosaurs because kids love animals and they love like imagining what exists in the world and what is possible in the world and the natural world is amazing and we like lose our wonder so quickly as we get older for the natural world and and for our own imaginations like we just don't imagine anymore i i like played pretend games way later than like most kids i was like playing pretend i think into like 5th or 6th grade basically up until you don't get recess anymore um just <laughs> so rude uh, so rude but like by the time you know you're like in 5th grade you're like 10 years old or whatever like especially girls on the playground like girls in the playground are just standing around talking about boys they're not running anymore <laughs> they're not playing anymore or they're just gossiping about other girls um that's a, again a dramatic oversimplification um and boys are just playing basketball right like they're not playing imaginary games either boys are just playing basketball girls are like maybe playing like four square i don't know if girls play that anymore, but, <laughs> um but yeah that was my experience i was like i still wanted to like play I still wanted to really play. I wanted to like run away from dinosaurs or whatever it was, you know, imaginary games because I didn't understand why nobody could see what I could still see. I didn't want to play in that way with me and jokes on them cuz now people pay me to do it. <laughs> but um no, it's just like I I think that that's that's like one thing that Jurassic Park does so beautifully is it lets us imagine again, right? Like like I've talked about it's it's earnestness and it's sense of awe and wonder for the natural world and that's childlike in the most beautiful way possible. We all should still feel that sense of wonder, I think, when you like look at a mountain or something, you know, like you should feel that way because the world is so much bigger than you are and it's so full of things. Like a strong imagination is a superpower, right? And it's like it's what makes us empathetic human beings, like imagining what it would feel like to be in someone else's place on the other side of the world. That's what you you need in order to be like a compassionate person in society. And you need to be able to feel that way about like yeah, animals and trees and like 
that's how we understand our place in the universe. And so, you know, sci-fi movies do that really well. And Jurassic Park is an amazing example of like a sci-fi, you know, big monster, but like spectacle action movie. And so I think that that's where my personal affinity for it comes from. There's such a beautiful invitation in this movie to remember what it is to be a kid and to like just jaw drop, like look at the an, an animal <laughs> that is just like unbelievably cool and different than you are and like so much more powerful than you are. That's the other thing is like, again, there's this sense of like, you need to remember that the world is not about you and that the world is a lot bigger than you and could gobble you up very quickly. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> movies that are set in space, you know, that kind of thing, like great big sweeping space movies make you feel that way too, where you're like, God, I'm small. I think that's something we all should remember a little bit more often. That was beautiful. I love that. Is that maybe something that filmmakers can also take away? Never lose sure. the wonder? Yeah? Absolutely. I mean, there's a cynicism to filmmaking these days that I find to be really... I was going to say unpleasant, but what I really mean is sad. Right? <laughs> like, um, It just... No, just... It makes me... Um, yeah, it, it just makes me sad for, like, young people. I don't want our young people to just have this, like, cynical edge to them from a very young age, where movies are constantly sort of apologizing or, like, winking at the camera or there's, like, you know, some irony to them or everyone wants something that's, like, more serious and edgy and grittier than everything else is. And... We don't have to make movies that way. I think Jurassic Park is a good reminder that you don't have to make movies that way. Or maybe you do actually to get them made these uh. days, but we haven't always made movies that way. And I hope we I hope we don't make movies the way we're making them now forever. You can't put it back in the box, right? Like you can't, um, sorry, that's a, a reference to one of the Jurassic World movies. One of the, uh, this is in Jurassic World Falling Kingdom. There's the like bad guy who says like, what do you want me to do? Go back in time before him and decided to play God. You can't put it back in the box. It's true. None of us can put the film industry or the intervening 25 years. Have we been doing bad math this entire time? We need to add a whole decade. Oh, is it 30? Onto, yeah. Is it 30? Yep. It's 30. It's almost 30 years old. Math, when it be Barry, when it gets it's when it gets <laughs> twenty nine years is how long it's been. Jesus, you are the one who came from the mathematician. Yours should be better at math than I. No, <laughs> all the movies is the only thing I have in common with my dad. Fair enough. No arguments there. <laughs> there have been so many things that have changed in the movie industry and changed in American culture and global culture that you simply just can't rewind, and so. You cannot make Jurassic Park again because we are not who we were as a society and the movie industry is not what it was. I would love it if someone could come along with a high concept idea that I've never seen or heard of before or even imagined at all and sit down and, and make a movie that is so earnest and so spectacular that is also such an amazing character story and thematic conversation and do it all in two hours. I would love it if someone would do that and then also they would just let someone do that and then not make it into like eight sequels and, you know, spin off TV series. I hope that people stay in touch with their sense of wonder that they feel when they watch a movie like Jurassic Park or whatever your version of this is, right? If that's Alien, great. If that's Interstellar, 
great. God bless you. Like whatever it is that ignites that sense of wonder for you, pay attention to it and honor it. And, you know, maybe try to find a way to sprinkle it into your filmmaking or better yet, tap into it as the entire root of your next project. All those ideas are beautiful. Tap into the wonder. Jurassic Park has the advantage of being kind of the only movie in its field. In the same way that, you know, Titanic is like the boat disaster movie. There are no other boat disaster movies. There's not going to ever be another like seminal boat disaster movie. There was one. It was a real thing that happened. And then they made like the most incredible movie you ever could have made about it. And that's it. Right. And so it's like, there's nothing to stand up against it. It's the boat disaster movie. Jurassic Park is the dinosaur movie. Yeah. There are no others. They tried. Go home, everybody. Like, (laughs) Steven Spielberg made it. And so I've thought a lot about this where, like, there are a few other scary animal monster movies. And there are certainly other monster movies. Mm -hmm. But there's something that's fundamentally kind of cornball about them because they're never about real monsters, right? Like, and even scary animals, you have something like uh, A Cry in the Dark, right, which is about lions. And there's a few other things like that. Like, I love a good, like, survivalist movie, right? So you have something like White Fang or whatever that's, like, a good survivalist or The Revenant, right? That's a good survivalist movie that usually has, like, a scary animal component to it. But those are not monster movies. Those are survivalist movies. And then monster movies are about monsters, not about animals, usually. And there's something other than, like, Jaws, right? Right. And there's something these days where we don't like to see our animals be smirched. Like their reputations in movies, like how dare you make a scary tiger movie or whatever, because (laughs) tigers are noble animals. And look, they are like, I'm not, I'm not denying that they are. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, right? Like there was conservationists had a real problem trying to save sharks after Jaws. And that was a problem. Like it was problematic to show a one dimensional killer shark in Jaws for the environment. And so I'm not saying like, I'm not sad that we're not making scary animal movies anymore, (laughs) but I'm just saying Jurassic Park has the advantage of being the only dinosaur movie basically. And it occupies this space where it's like, here were cool monsters that were real and actually existed, which buys you a lot of grounding and believability and makes the adventure feel grounded. But at the same time, it's not, you know, (laughs) ruining the reputation of real animals that were trying to save their lives kind of thing. There just kind of is no way to repeat any part of it. Like, its construction is a monster movie, an action movie, a sci-fi movie. And unless you want to make something about aliens or monsters like the thing or something like that, you know, like then you kind of can't make Jurassic Park anymore. And no one ever made Jurassic Park before this. And no one's ever going to make anything like it again that doesn't have the Jurassic Park name at the start of it <laughs> like or Jurassic World name at the start of it. You know, we always want to like learn a lesson from things that are successful and things that we love and The unfortunate slash cool part about Jurassic Park is that it's just the only one. There's only ever going to be this one. If you want to make something that's like, yeah, does all the things that we talked about, you got to make something totally new. You got to kind of start over and tap into that wonder, but like in a totally and completely different way, which is cool. Which you can do. I want to stress you can you can do that. You can do that. And and I would love, yeah, everyone should try. Go ahead. Like, I would love it. You know, I can't wait for whatever 
that is or whatever that turns out to be. And there have been movies since Jurassic Park that have, you know, captured some of that sense of, of childlike wonder and, and awe. But it's not going to be this. Like, we got one. We got to make one. There's just this one dinosaur thing. And that's cool. This is it. One of the best movies ever. And it turns out to be the dinosaur movie. And that's cool. Whatever your cultural fascination is, whether it's like pirates or bootleggers or I don't know, whales. Like, I don't know. Whatever your thing is that you really love. I mean, listen, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl is the Jurassic Park of pirate movies. No, of course. Yes, it is. You're absolutely right about that. But that's what I'm saying. Somebody else tapped into that childlike wonder and adventure and they applied it to pirates and that they made the Jurassic Park of pirates. It's amazing. And now there's only that one. Now they did it the one time and, and it's been done. So, you know. Hang up your spurs, everybody. I don't know. On pirates. So it's just like, pick something else that you really like. I'm just saying dinosaurs are not like time travel. There like have been a hundred time travel movies. Dinosaurs are not like that. You can't make a hundred dinosaur movies. There's not that many different versions of dinosaurs, but. That's true. Whales, although maybe. We'll find out. Although I will say that I don't think the lesson behind watching a great film is let me go make that film again. You know, that should never be the lesson you take away from watching any beloved film. But I do think that there is room for more cool live action dinosaur related films. You just have to not ruin it like Jurassic World did. You know, like there's a way to tap into this genre i guess people are just too afraid because jurassic park is like perfect but i'm just saying i wouldn't mind another cool live action dinosaur uh related movie yep good luck I, I, i'm not the one who's gonna make it <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm not gonna make myself make good luck it to but anyone writing a dino movie damn we should have a good whale movie <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna go write my whale movie my my production coordinator was like what about free willy I mean, it's like a, that's like a whale in captivity movie. I need like a wild whale movie. Like, let's go. A wild whale movie. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. This is the exclusive. When Trisha Aran's wild whale movie comes it's out. wild whale. It's called wild whale. You'll have heard it here first. We got the scoop. I'm holding you to this now. Okay. So maybe we can't make them exactly like we used to. Trisha's right. You can't just redo Jurassic Park, despite how many times they've tried to at this point. (laughs) But you can make the Jurassic Park of something else. Find what fascinates you, craft an original premise around it, and tap into the wonder. This is how we can hearken back to a time that gave us classics like Jurassic Park. Just don't make the Jurassic Park of whale movies. Trisha has that one covered. I can see it now. Wild Whale, written and directed by Trisha Arand. Coming soon, hopefully. Let me know what thing you would make the Jurassic Park of in our free My Favorite Movie Is Discord community. I know that joining yet another online community can be a hard sell these days, especially as film discourse online can be very toxic and judgy. But not with us. We're a group of positive, passionate movie lovers who want nothing more than to hear your stories. Do you have memories with Jurassic Park? What have you been watching recently? Is there a movie that you love that needs more love? We want to hear 
all about it, and we promise to welcome you with open arms and maybe a watch party or two. In fact, we all watched Jurassic Park with Trisha last week, and it was a lot of fun, and we plan to do it again with every film that we cover on the show. Speaking of which, on our next episode, we are diving back into horror with one of the genre's most well-known films and filmmakers. It's M. Night Shyamalan's debut feature, The Sixth Sense, and we're talking about it with writer, director, and actress Anna Chazelle. The movie is available to stream on Amazon Prime at the time of this recording. However, you're probably going to want to watch it with a group of fellow movie lovers, some of whom may be seeing it for the very first time. So click on the link in the show notes and join our wonderful community today, completely free of charge. I hope to see you there. My Favorite Movie Is is a Larry Freed Presents production. The show was created by and is currently hosted and produced by me, Larry Freed. Our sound recordist for this episode was Dan Grunberg. Our camera operator was Steven Reyes. And our editors were myself, as well as Fernando Queiroz. Our graphic designer is Monica Sarmiento. Our motion graphics designer is Elton Greenfield. And our theme song, Now and Then, as well as all original music featured on this show, is composed and performed by Mac or Duke. A special thank you to Trisha Arand for being a wonderful guest and for being so generous with her time. And another special thank you to our patrons, Tony, Keith, Sean, Rafi, Taylor, Mo, and Charles. You guys are helping to keep this boat afloat. And by boat, I mean podcast. Patrons get some awesome benefits for supporting the show, including uncut and ad-free versions of every episode. So if you want to become a patron, you can join us at patreon.com slash MFMI podcast. This has been Larry Freed. Thank you for listening to My Favorite Movie Is.